He has been a staple of Broadway musicals for nearly two decades, with credits including Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Beauty and the Beast, High Society, The Wild Party, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Assassins, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, The Apple Tree, and Nine to Five. But he's also a regular off-Broadway and in regional theaters specializing in new musicals with roles in The Witches of Eastwick and The Highest Yellow at Signature Theater in Virginia, See What I Want to See at The Public, and The Glorious Ones at Lincoln Center Theater, where he's now appearing in A Minister's Wife. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I always enjoy an opportunity to spend time with Mark Kudish. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? Minister's Wife is fascinating to me Mm -hmm. because more so than any musical I think I've ever seen, the fluidity between dialogue and song Mm -hmm. is, is, well, I've said it, it's completely fluid. What is it like to perform when you are transitioning so instantaneously back and forth between speaking and singing? It's easy. Really? Well, think about it. You know, you're not making something work. You're not making something sort of, you know, uh, transfer from one vernacular to the other. It just is. You're not trying to make sense of why you go into a song. There's absolute reason to go into a song. It's like it suddenly heightens from prose to aria because it must, you know, and, and that makes your life a lot easier because you're not worrying about big potholes in the road or why you suddenly go into song and dance. There's the old question of why do you start, you know, why start a song, you know, and the show in itself, I think, is such a great example of you sing when you must, you stop when you're done, and you don't have to button you don't have to tell an audience how to feel or think. You don't have to indicate to them that this is good or that they're supposed to feel a particular way. You offer information to them in the way that you feel the information come out of you, and you allow them to be responsible for their own reaction. It gives you the opportunity to have a conversation with an audience and allow an audience to actively participate on their own grounds. How do you mean that? Well, what I mean is, again, there's no button to a song. Right. So, but, when, but when an audience participates in a mm-hmm, musical, uh-huh. it's because the song ends and they get to express their appreciation. And there's okay. not that opportunity. Well, we're not in school. We don't have a teacher <laughs> telling students what they're allowed to do. We are, we, are, we are having conversations, with, as far as I'm concerned, with adults who are intelligent and smart, have their own opinions. I fully allow them to respond in whatever way they choose to. You know, I, I, I think we've – look, formula is a lovely thing, and I believe in um, technique, and I believe in discipline, I believe in structure, I believe in understanding the arc of a story for the evening, and then I believe you just do it, and I believe that you tell your story as unapologetically, as, as authentically as you can, and you allow an audience the opportunity to actively participate in return. What I believe we have – forgotten, and I think more audience than producing, is that we are participants in the evening. We are not just observers. The reason you go to the theater, unlike going to the movies, is because you want to actively participate in a live conversation that's happening in front of you in the moment. Whether or not it's pre-rehearsed, what you have is an organism that has come together for one evening First and last, it'll never happen again. And together, to experience emotion, to experience story, to experience an event together, actively participate together, and then leave in the hopes that you'll walk out with a little more than you came in with. My feeling is always, I said this to my director, Michael Halberstam, I said, people pay a lot of money for a theater ticket. I think I'd be pretty pissed off if I didn't put myself to work while I was there. So when you say put yourself to work, you mean when you're an audience member? Yeah. So how do you put yourself to work as an audience member? Be participant. Mm -hmm. Be actively present. I say to actors when I teach master classes, the idea of an actor having presence. Mm -hmm. Everybody talks about presence. Oh, you have such presence on a stage or blah, 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 blah. It's all bullshit. Presence is the act of being present. Which I think is a challenge in itself nowadays because it's so easy to have ADD and and, and to just have your attention in a thousand different directions. 
And as actors, it is our job, it is our responsibility, it is our craft to prepare a pre-rehearsed story with focus, with nuance, with emotion, and present it in a community situation to an audience so that it seems spontaneous. What really does make the pre-rehearsed situation spontaneous is an audience actively participating. Watching the show the other night, I, of course, was struck knowing the original Shaw play, and I would say Shaw is a playwright who wants to force audiences to engage. He wants them to think about what they're seeing. And I was intrigued by the way Candida, the original play, is condensed and focused Mm -hmm. even more than it was in the Shaw. In performing it, do you draw at all on the original play, which had more details than even appear yeah. on the stage for Minister's Most Wife? of the dialogue that you hear during the course of the evening is Shaw. Mm-hmm. Austin's done a brilliant job editing and condensing to bring it you know, into more focus in terms of the love triangle. There's a major character that was in the original play, um, Burgess, who is Candida's father, that was cut out of it largely because he was more of a social commentary in terms of class. And not unlike Alfred Doolittle, not unlike from, from but, Pygmalion. But My the Fair difference Lady. with Alfred Doolittle was Doolittle did forward plot, mm-hmm. whereas Burgess was really commentary. You know, um, and in this particular case, because we really wanted to explore the marital situation, um, we wanted to explore the inner, real inner emotions of what these people are going through, which is what I think makes the piece so contemporary. Um, and they felt very strongly about losing the character of Burgess, losing a lot of the social commentary that may or may not have real place in today's world, but still keeping the father in the play by referring to him and utilizing a part of what he represents to further support the love triangle. It is called A Minister's Wife. The play originally was Candida. It was completely about her. Here... She is portrayed in relation to your character. Well, now, see, that's interesting. Because, no, actually, it wasn't about Candida, per se, in the original play. I find that everybody thinks it's about whatever character they most connect to. Mm -hmm. Some people think it's about morale. Some people think it's largely about Marchbanks. Some people think it is about Candida. My feeling, of course, I'm coming from morale's point of view, so it's challenging for me to see it from another place as strongly, but I look at the play as being a play very strongly about objectification. Look, not unlike, I mean, this is a completely different piece, but it just, Bye Bye Birdie is not about Birdie. True. Okay. It is about, to some large degree, how we objectify Birdie. Mm-hmm. I, when I did that play a thousand years ago, always approached the character as how what we do to our icons, how we define our icons. And in that, that's when I knew how to play the role. Because he's just a guy. It's not, he's just who he is. What he's created to be is what society did, not unlike here. Canada is who she is. The evening is created between these two men and how they objectify her. Which, from the original Shaw, because particularly, as I recall it, the second act had the sustained scene between Marchbanks and Canada, which in this piece, which runs all of 95 minutes, that whole scene plays out in five minutes in this show. It's very condensed. Mm -hmm. So as you say... It's about their perceptions, their differing perceptions of who she is. I'm curious also about your perception of March Banks because, yes, this show focuses on the triangle. But there's also the issue of him as a man of faith Mm -hmm. but also as a man of human passion. And I'm just wondering because the faith is not dealt with as explicitly – How much do you deal internally with where he's coming from as a minister as opposed to a husband? But here's the thing. We are all different facets of our lives. And even though we are all of those things at any given period of time in the day, we are never all of those things at every given time during the day. 
and parts of our personality come out strongly in different places. My feeling about him being a minister is before you can be a man of God, you must first ultimately be a man. To be able to make choices means that there has to be you know, some sense of fallibility in the person. The difference is the choice that we make. Given that, when you figure the fact that Morel, being this minister, is, you know, has his church in the East End of London, which most people wouldn't want to go near. I mean, for people that don't understand that, that's the worst neighborhood in London. And he has chosen to go to that church and to minister that particular church to help those people who need it the most. In my opinion, a man that wants to take on something like that has to be pretty rough and tumble to go in there and to want to help people and to want to bring faith to people. But I think that that particular kind of faith comes with a very strong, firm hand. He says himself many times during even Shaw's play, he has a short temper. It's a part of what he deals with in his life. He has great passion. The way that Shaw describes him, because, you know, Shaw doesn't leave anything to mere chance. Shaw's (laughs) stage notes are as detailed as anything you've ever read in your life. He describes him not only physically, but he describes him passionately and emotionally as a force of nature. He is Shaw, let's be honest. Shaw was a minister himself when you really think about it. The way that he railed in his plays, the way that he railed as a critic, he had very firm idealism in this world, as Morell does. So I can't look at him as just a minister. I think that he has his ministry and he has his passion in terms of his idealism of what, you know, being a good Christian scientist is and how it is to reach out and help other people. It's a very passionate force, but he's just a guy. At the end of the day, we're all just people. How much does the score, given the the fluidity of it with the text, how much does that impose upon you character? Well, it's an interesting question, um, and it's a discussion that we had a lot. It, 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 it informs you tremendously, and that's why, you know, um, Josh's music is so great, because it gives you a strong sense of character. I mean, you know, we opened the show with a whole, I want, we call it the sermon, and it is called the sermon, and yet what it really is, is it's basically watching a man with his, you know, his, uh, um, his two assistants, his secretary, and, you know, his young uh, minister under arm. It's watching these people create It's watching this man as a creative force. It's watching him create the sermon that he must give tonight for, you know, very pressured reasons. And he is at his best when he is under pressure. And the music dictates that, you know. Now, that being said, we had to have discussions about making it feel spontaneous and musically making sure that there are moments where the music may take charge, but then that the action is what incites the music as opposed to music inciting action. And these are the small questions that comes into play when you're dealing with music that is more nuanced, more fluid in terms of speech to song. And there was always the question of tempo here or this orchestration here. I actually, you know, oh, that's beautiful. That's fantastic. I love that. Please, let's not lose that. But over here, it would be, why is the music coming in before the dialogue? I feel like it's the music leading the action, and we have to make sure action always leads the music, that the action is only heightened by the music underneath, but that it comes from the action first. And so they inform each other, and we've and, and the score has been enhanced, and the score has been enriched by the activity of what's going on on that stage. And, you know, what's really groovy about Josh Schmidt is he actually orchestrates when he writes, which I've never dealt with before. I've never had a composer who orchestrates while he writes, which is stunning because his mind is brilliant. But then there are those moments where you have to say, okay, we need to look at that orchestration in this moment because it's not actually lining up with what the activity is. And there's a preconceived notion behind that orchestration. But... You know, it has to happen. Theater, to me, is something that happens collaboratively. It must. And this was a very collaborative environment that we worked in. Um, Very smart people all around. And it's interesting because, of course, the show had first been done in Chicago at Writer's Theater 
you were new to it here in New York. Bobby Steggert is new to it here in New York. But there was still a lot of work being done. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But that's the process of it, you know? You can't think that you're done with a show and then get a new cast if you're in the process of something and think, oh, they're just going to do what the other people did. I mean, that just does, that, that's not smart because every time you have a new company, you have new brains together. You have new creativity together. You have new ideas that are going to start flying. And when a work is in process, that's going to be a part of the process. And they were very open to that. I mean, that's a large reason, I think, why they asked me to do it, because certainly Austin and Lincoln Center know the way I work. And they know that I'm <laughs> um, very formidable with my opinions. And But they also know that I always approach the work on the large scale and not just from my point of view. Mm. I'm very passionate about story. And I have a very, very healthy ego. But I don't think ego is a negative term. I think it's just where ego is directed. When ego is directed to self, that's arrogance. But when ego is directed at work, that's confidence. Hmm. And that's where I try very hard to focus my very large ego. So where does this come from? You, by accounts that I've read, didn't do high school theater. You describe yep. yourself as the – you were the president of the Spanish club for two years. You now remember no Spanish. Your brother was the big man on campus. Yep. Um, so you went to college. Yeah. Did you have any idea what you were going to study? It's funny because, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing <laughs> – I'm going to be doing a show at Feinstein's uh, this summer called What What Makes Me Tick. And the whole point of it was was really more my own exploration of sort of how I ended up doing this mm -hmm. through music. Well, let's workshop it for the next few minutes. <laughs> no, but really, I, I'm not kidding. A part of the reason I wanted to do it, and that's an idea I've had for a while, was because when I think about it, I never as a kid had ever expected to do theater, ever. Mm -hmm. But when I look back and I look at the music that I heard growing up and I look at my environment and, and, and just sort of how things happened with me, it makes complete sense that I ended up in music theater. The kind of music that I listened to as a kid was all the same kind of stuff. It was during a period of fusion, the late 60s, early 70s, when, you know, Blood, Sweat, and Tears was on the radio. Jesus Christ Superstar was on the radio. Peter, Paul, and Mary were on the radio. There was this mix of rock music, and rock music was really finding its full stride at that period of time. Really creative stuff. And it was having a massive influence on, like, Broadway stuff. So they, they sounded the same, man. Right, but that's what you're listening to. The ability to perform it is another thing altogether. I listen to the same music. We're not that far apart in age, right. but I'm not starring in musicals. But the thing so, that I okay, so but here's the, the difference. Okay, here's here's the question I have for you. Then you dug that music. Do you know why? Just sheer enjoyment. Okay, and and finding music that spoke to me. Okay. I know why I love that music, and I think that's the difference. Because all of that stuff that I listened to, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Yes, Queen, okay, I could go, right? Rick was Wakeman, all, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. But <laughs> we, yeah. we in the same group. Okay. okay, but like what's interesting is the stuff that I really listened to, that I really dug, and that includes Jesus Christ Superstar and Peter, Paul, and Mary, all of it told story. Mm -hmm. And that's what I dug. It was music that actually said something. And that had a story to tell. Is this and where I, I think, admit that I liked Harry Chapin? Why not? <laughs> yeah. But see, this is my point. That's the stuff that sort of floored me. And that was the music that I was always drawn to. And I think that as I got older and, you know, we got into the 80s and music got kind of strange, I hung out and hung on to the stuff that I loved when I was younger. And I realized when I was in high school, somewhere in high school, I liked story. I liked telling story. You know, my English teacher in the, my sophomore year, I had the same teacher as I had in my senior year. She hated me in my sophomore year. I was a terror in, 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 in class. But for whatever reason, in our senior year in English Lit, that was when Shakespeare was introduced. And I dug reading it. I don't know why. I just did. And I think a large part of that was, was because even as a kid, the music that I loved was storytelling it took, like Jesus Christ Superstar, which I loved from the time I was such a young kid, because it's this this fairy tale, it's this 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 epic story, but it suddenly becomes totally human, and it makes it even more compelling. But I'm going to come back to the same question. 
you loved it. I loved these stories as well. I didn't articulate it quickly when you asked. But when did you realize or discover that you had the talent for being a part of telling the stories? If you'd not done it in high school, you're already in college. What was the discovery? Well, I think part of the discovery was in my senior year in high school, I did do a musical. Okay. Because in my senior year, I just wanted to do something to say that I had done something social in high school because I was so not social in high school. And I wasn't under sort of the shadow of my brother anymore. Because he was already on. Well, yeah. You know, um, not, I mean, I love my brother. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, it was just a younger brother syndrome. And uh, I started to just sort of put myself out there and my grades falter a little bit in senior as a senior because I just wanted to try other things. And um, I was a cheerleader. And we were doing like, you know, uh, something for the school and uh, the theater, the drama teacher saw me and said, you should audition. We're going to be doing My Fair Lady. You should audition for that. And I was like, whatever. Okay, sure. Because I thought this is my last chance in high school to even try this. So I auditioned and I wanted the role of Alfred Doolittle because he made me laugh. And I got Freddie Einsford Hill. How that happened, I don't know. And so in high school, I played Freddie Einsford Hill, and I sung the first time in my life, and I was just awful. Of course, I was awful. But I found that there was something in the expression of it that I loved. When I went to college, I went as a poli-sci major. I wanted to be a politician. You know, I was in, uh, you know, Boy State when I was in high school. I don't even know, you know if you remember what that was. They take top 10 percentile or 5 percentile of the state, and you go to the state capital for a week, in this case, Tallahassee. And you run the government for a week. And my father was a lobbyist, so I wanted to get into politics. So I think a part of it stems from loving politics because, again, I felt so strongly even then that I had something to say. What I discovered when I went to college and I was studying poli-sci and I was taking theater courses to just give me something fun, at least I thought, I realized that I did have something to say, but politics was not the way I wanted to say it. But when you do theater, you're using someone else's words. You have you have something you can express, but you are giving voice to someone else's thoughts. We all have the same thoughts. Someone else wrote those thoughts down. That was their job. My job is to give dimension to those thoughts, to be the ambassador of that to an audience whose job it is is to take it and go forth beyond those two to three hours. So often, though, I talk to actors who say so much of their career is accidents. They take things because they need the job. Mm -hmm. And consequently, when you take work because you need employment, you don't get to choose the message you're sending. There's always a choice, and I don't go with that. My feeling is, is the roles that I've gotten, I've gotten because I've been the person to give voice to those roles. I'm the person that was going to give dimension to those roles. And those were roles that excited me. I mean, so, you know, I think when you walk in a room and you audition, you have to give your own voice to it. That's going to inspire a writer. Remember, what we do is collaborative. I've been lucky. I do a lot of original stuff. And even when I work on revival stuff, my feeling about reviving is is to re- Vive it, which also means revisit it, reignite whatever was there. And um, I believe that I've had the good fortune to collaborate with people that are so smart. You know, Michael John Lacusa, those are his words, but I can tell you that they, they are infused with my energy and, and those characters. So, And he'll tell you the same, that when he writes, he writes with people's voices in mind. And when you get together with him, in our experience, it's been this great collaborative, I mean, I can point to certain things in his music, which are me, you know, on top of his stuff. So it becomes this collaborative goong. I can point to scripts of, of musicals that I've been in that I can say, well, that was my idea. That was my idea. You add to the conversation. There is the constant conversation going on and you hope to add to it. You hope to become a thread in the full fabric. Dropping any pretense at chronology in this conversation, I want to ask you immediately. So as you're giving voice... Why do you think it is you've twice been asked to play the devil? Well, 
um, because I'm very happy with the devil in me. I don't apologize for it. That's why. First of all, it's a character that absolutely fascinates me. It's fascinated me as long as I can remember. And we should say, which is a Beastwick and the Apple Tree. Right. The two that I'm speaking. And uh, it won't be the last time, by the way. I think a part of that is I sort of tread an edge that I don't think many people do. I think that I've been fortunate that I've created a niche in some ways for myself because I go places other people kind of don't even want to go. Meaning? Well... Where do you go? I go to the edge. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means particularly. The edge of good taste, the edge of reason, the edge of what should be acceptable to do on a stage or not. I don't care, quite frankly. That's for other people to deal with in their own time. And for a director to decide how close to the edge they want to let you go. Well, yeah. Or how, you know, how far over that edge they'd like to see someone go. I don't watch myself when I'm on a stage and I don't limit myself in terms of what the possibilities are. And I like playing characters that are just flat out dangerous. And I think that that's a part of the reason why. And I think I'm very good at finding and on that edge, finding that balance between humor and deadly seriousness. And I just think a lot of people, I personally think people are afraid to go there more often than not. I mean, think about it. You know, Wild Party, I had to rape a 14-year-old girl on the stage. And we took our time with that. But I was never going to apologize for what that character had to do, ever. That's my job. It's not my job to worry about if people like me. It's not my job to worry about, you know, that people don't take it the wrong way. Let them take it the wrong way. Audiences are smart, and they deserve all of the information as authentically as you can give it. There are some performers that when they're out there are watching themselves and or wanting to make sure that people are liking them or, 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 or enjoying their performance or are, are impressed by them, I go the other direction. When I'm out on a stage, I want to give whatever this character is, whatever this story is, whatever the information is, 100% authenticity if I can. And I want to offer it in the most unapologetic way I can. So let me take a step backwards from the devil. I have seen you play many times villains, sure. but comic villains. Well, every villain is comic. As every everything, look, King Lear always had the fool next to him. Mm-hmm. That's not coincidental. So I think that comic villains, like name a comic villain that you've played. Yeah, um, the 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 boss in Nine to Five. Okay. Okay, funny at times, mm-hmm. not funny at other times. Mm-hmm. That's a guy that walks an edge. Do you know? I like playing... See, I look at it more like this. I like to play the foil. And more often than not, the foil is the character that is in many ways the obstacle of the evening. And he is a character that when pushed to his edge will ultimately break. So he's going to fight back before he does, like the boss. What's interesting to me about Franklin Hart and why I enjoyed playing that is, first of all, it's true. Guys were like that. I know guys that were like that. My father's boss was just like that. And it wasn't funny. Hmm. But he thought that he had rights to everything and he thought that, you know, he deserved it. And when people would poke at him, then you'd see that real guy come out, you know? And with Hart, what's interesting is those women doing that to him, it just martyred him. It made it even worse. That's why we laugh. Because sometimes laughter is recognition and release of tension. That's the kind of laughter I like. I will say this, though. I would say there was bare to none laughter that was just based on cheap joke. That you won't see from me. If I get a laugh from you, it's more often than not release tension. You know? Let me mention another one. Mm-hmm. Baron Bomberst and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, both you and Jan Maxwell together, put twists on those characters that were nowhere in that movie, and I'm not even sure they were quite in that script. Maybe not. 
But Jan and I came up with such specific ideas of who those characters were for each other. Look, I mean, you know, what's the point of doing it if you don't have a point of view? And if you're not passionate about that point of view, if you're not passionate, it ain't worth doing. Jan is, by far and large, a passionate actress with a very powerful point of view. There's no way she's going to walk on a stage and not have something to say beyond just what the words are. And that's when our point of view comes into, as we talked about before, the script, someone else's words. And I'm very similar that way. And Jan and I, through our own personal stuff and talking together, came up with a relationship that made strong sense to both of us. And we played it. You know, and there were definite... um limitations in that process but i think that jan and i succeeded or were able to succeed in a way that let's just say others weren't for multiple reasons um but i think a part of the reasons were you know again i thought i think that when people saw what jan and i were doing on the creative side of things it, it got them a little scared because in their own minds i think they were looking at it as more of a a, a children's show to some degree and I kept saying, but children's stories are the best stories in the world. Hence the success of Beauty and the Beast. Hence the success of Harry Potter. Hence the success of, you know, any of those childhood stories have a deep, deep, deep truth to them that is frightening. And I know as a kid, I don't know about you, but the child catcher was the most frightening thing in the world to me back then. And I wanted to infuse that same kind of stuff for the adults because everyone is a kid and if you're fortunate enough to be able to touch the kid in an adult you've done something you've done something for them you know hmm. so jan and i went we just went hmm. i'm working backwards from stages of evil stages of evil <laughs> um now uh a comic foil, since you used the word foil, certainly not a villain. You have played Carl Ma Magnus. Carl in, Magnus Malcolm, yeah. In um, Night Music four or five times? Uh, I did it at Philadelphia Philharmonic. I did it at New York City Opera. I did it at L.A. Opera and Ravinia four times. So in the same way I asked about why the devil, why do you think you keep getting Carl Magnus? Because why? I understand that man. Explain him to me. Real comedy stems first from truth. It must. And if you don't understand innately what is humorous about a character, first of all, then you're focused on something you shouldn't be. If there's one thing I try to focus on in anything that I do, it's not result. It's intent. If you're looking for a result, i.e., if you're looking to be funny, that's not funny. But if you're focused on the character's intent... An audience is going to tell you if it's funny or not. But more than that, even if it's not funny the way you'd like it to be funny, it's still going to have resonance and it's going to carry you to the next moment for that character. I love Carl Magnus because I think that he's a brilliant man where most people think he's just a shallow idiot. And just because other characters in the play call him an idiot doesn't make him an idiot. If people called you an idiot, does that make you an idiot? I'm certainly sure from your point of view it does not. Everyone has the right to their opinion. And I always said that when I was playing it. Yeah, okay, they all think he's an idiot, but he's not had the chance to come on and voice himself yet. And P.S., he happens to be married to a very brilliant woman. There's no way she'd be married to just an idiot. She's far too smart and far too passionate. So there's something there. What is that thing? And then you have to go to society, the period of time that they're in. I mean, first of all, he's a count. Second of all, it was absolutely appropriate in that period of time and in that society to have a mistress. It was actually a sign of status. That's the joy of that play, is watching the difference between society having an effect on real emotion in that relationship. It's a very adult relationship. 
And watching this man and watching his jealousy come out, watching him talking about being the tiger and then ultimately discovering what the tiger really is at the end of the play, finding the arc for it all. And he can't be stupid. It's his job to be, yet again, the foil. It's his job to be smart, not stupid, because it makes everyone else around him that much smarter, that much on edge. You know, Desiree and Frederick, to keep the lie going, have to be at the top of their game because he's relentless. He's Oedipus. He wants the truth. He knows what the truth is. But he's a soldier, and he has a certain belief system, and he needs to see it. He can smell it. But he's a man of honor. He needs to see it. And when he does find it, that's when he starts to go. Now, that's an amazing explanation of that character. Mm -hmm. When you play it four times Mm -hmm. with four different casts, for presumably four different directors? No, same director. Well, yeah, same director. All four times? Uh, Okay, two different directors. Okay. Does your portrayal change with the different cast or the two different directors subtly yeah it has to it must i mean who he is is who he is but who his wife is well that's going to redefine everything isn't it Mm -hmm. and who his lover is and who he looks at as his his foil is going to change everything Um, And you have to roll with that. But then that's the joy of doing that, you know. I mean, I played it, you know, like I said, largely in in the opera arenas. So they were never really long runs. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't anything that I got tired of or did eight shows a week of to the point that you'd get into rhythm of stuff. And I certainly have played it with, you know, Frederick was, um, um, you know, Victor Garber I did it with, who I adore and admire. And I love that very Jeremy Irons. You know, and I Desiree with Judith Ivy at one situation, and you know the last time I did it was over at the Roundabout as a benefit, and it was with Natasha Richardson, God rest her. It was the last thing she did on stage, and her mother Vanessa, who was brilliant, and I mean, and Victor, and and Christine Baranski, and you know I've done it with Michelle Park as as Charlotte. Those two, I mean, mm, come on. It's it's just uh, lush and beautiful and wonderful. So as we talk, as I go through this progression of roles, um, I'm getting to to a point that you you've been asked about and talk about often. But there's really one leading man in all of this. As we get to the sort of when you got to not be the foil, which was when you did. Um, when you did Bells Are Ringing, mm-hmm. that was probably the most conventionally written leading man role that uh, that, that you've I've, taken on. In New York, yeah. And so what was it like to do that, given everything you've said about what you enjoy about these other roles? But see, he's no different. This is my – and this is my problem a lot of times with the limitations of, of, of the industry's perception, which is why we've got to get rid of it. Jeff Moss is a great character. I don't care if he's the lead. First of all, those are terrible words to use in our business. I'm the lead. Who cares? Shut up. Do your job. This is my role in the play. Boom. That's it. You may have more lines. You may have more plot point. But at the end of the day, Jeff Moss was a fantastic character. And no different than any of these other characters. He was a man on edge. The difference with this guy was he starts on edge and then actually ends up being freed and released. As opposed to most of the other characters that I've played that sort of of start a little more confident and free and released and end up on edge. Hmm. But this is a guy that was on the edge. He's calling this woman in the middle of the night. He's calling her mom. He doesn't even know who she is at this answering service. And he's spilling his heart to her because he has no one else to talk to. I mean, that's a guy who's on the edge. Hmm. And, you know, he falls in love with this woman. He doesn't even know who she is. But he so needs a savior in his life. And then ultimately ends up saving her in the second act. And that was the joy of playing that character. 
because I played the character. I didn't care about him being likable. I didn't care about him being suave or debonair or any of that crap because that's not my responsibility. Truth be told, I was playing Sidney Chaplin, who originated the role and who it was written for mm-hmm. and who Judy Holliday went to Comden and Green and said, I want you to write this piece for me and for Sid, who she was seeing at the time, because in so many ways, she actually did save him in his life. So this was in so many ways an autobiographical piece. So I was thinking more Sid Chaplin. And and of course, I played the lead man like a character. And critically, people had issue with it. Hmm. Well, that brings right to the question. What is a character actor? You are you you have spoken of yourself at times and certainly other people speak of you as a character actor. Is that to what you just said a few moments ago, an unfair or inappropriate label? No, I am a character actor. So what makes you a character actor and not not simply an actor? I'll tell you what it is. And this is as simply and straightforward as I can put it. Character comes before me. Done. That's it. When I'm on a stage, I'm focused on character. I'm not focused on me. I'm not focused on what I look like. I'm not focused on what I sound like. I'm not focused on my own personality. I'm focused on that character. And I think that every time I play a character, it is rather different than the last character that I played. And I focus very hard on that. Um, if I just did one thing, I would probably much be much more successful, certainly wealthier, because I would be more embraceable or easy for people to walk in and know what the expectation will be. I think with me, I hope with me, that the the one expectation that people have with me is, is that they're not going to know what to expect with me. That is my hope. Every time I go into a show, I hope that I can take the audience, with the rest of the company, of course, on a ride that is somewhat unexpected, that you don't know where we're going, that you don't know what I'm going to do. That's my favorite. When, you know, and I love it when people say to me after every show I do, that's the best you've ever, that's the best thing you've ever done. That's your best work. Well, it's just another, it's just another show. It's just another character who I have not played. And so, yes, you're going to get different things because this is a different person. And that to me is the given. And that's why I consider myself a character actor. As we talk about expectations and labels in the business, everything we have talked about and intentionally in my introduction have been musicals. Mm. You are not solely a musical performer. You did Tennessee Williams up mm-hmm. at Hartford Stage. You've done a number of plays. Yeah, I just did The Golden Age the at the Kennedy Center for, uh, you know, for Terrence McNally, a lovely, wonderful play that will be coming to New York soon. So do you have to at times – fight to get people to consider you for plays? Sure. Because, again, people are limited in the way that they perceive things. People like limitations, actually, because it just makes it easier to be able to categorize. Mm -hmm. When I first came to the city, all I did was plays. Hmm. My first job in New York City was a play called Tomorrow the Living Movie off-Broadway with great actors. I didn't sing. No. And then I did a You play. ran from room to room. I ran and from Tamara, room to room. Tamara was, um, was, was sleep no more before anybody had conceived sleep yeah, no more. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've, I, knock on wood, I got here young and I started working. Tara Rubin cast me in that show when she was with Johnson and Liff. Tara gave me my first gig. I just saw it because, you know, she cast Minister's Wife and we were talking on opening night. And, you know, I was like, I remember when Tara said to me, you know, like, Why do you want to audition for musicals, Mark? You're an actor. Why do you want to do musicals? First of all, I hate the word musical. And that's funny because Tara casts so many musicals. Well, I know. But even at the time, I wanted to be seen for Les Mis really, really bad. And they're, but Mark, you're not, you're not a, you're not a singer, you know? I mean, and and I went through that. I remember when I auditioned for a replacement for Kiss of the Spider Woman and Hal even said to me at the time, you know, I love you as an actor, but we really need a singer for this. And I worked hard on it because I wanted to do it because I like the expression of story through multiple vernacular, not just the spoken word. There's something really breathtaking. And this is, again, 
the point. When someone is willing to open themselves up in such a way to sing, and I mean really sing, when you're willing to open yourself and truly resonate your energy to an audience, like resonate it to the point that people actually feel the impact of your voice hit them in the chest and not through a microphone, not through amplification, real resonance. That to me is one of the greatest gifts that you can give in this industry, in this business, because then you're connecting. It's all about connecting. It's all about having a conversation and connecting with people out there. But you're going beyond conversation. You are literally talking about affecting someone physically when you talk yeah. about resonating in them. Yeah. And most of our musicals that we see nowadays are amplified. Yeah, they it's are. It's not you causing the resonance. It's and I hate it. And, and, and I hate else. it. Yeah. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. It gets in the way. We're not doing movies, man. We're not, you know, and we can't compete with movies. And guess what? Guess what, industry? Movies cannot compete with us. This is the thing that blows my mind more than anything. It blows my mind that producers don't get it. Directors don't get it. Nobody gets it. Film can't compete with what we do. What we do happens on the stage, live, eight shows a week. It cannot be replaced. It's not possible to replace it or replicate it. Well, it's the very thing. I've written about this fact. People have to realize that the very old-fashioned nature of what we do, which is about being physically in a space together and interacting with each other, is not something that the movies can do. Movies can be replicated endlessly and shown in different sizes and different scales. It is still human beings in a room. Look, nothing compares. Nothing. You can go see film, and I love film, and, you know, special effects, CGI, blah, blah, blah. It's all wonderful stuff, and it allows you to get lost in a particular way. I'm not saying it doesn't. I love it, but there is a disconnection. You are having information thrown at you, and you are being told where to look. You're being told where to feel, how to feel. Point of view is being given to you left and right. Stage actors... We are our own editors. We have to be. We have to be there for each other to share focus, to know when it's time to focus either on yourself or on someone else so that an audience knows. Because the audience gets to choose where to focus. But it's that. An audience gets to choose. And more than that, it happens live. It's in front of you. There is nothing more human than watching people. I remember Dabney Coleman came to the opening in 9 to 5, and the first thing he said to me was, you do that eight times a week? I only had to do it three times. That was all. Three takes and I was done. And I was like, yep, yep, I know. Nope, eight eight shows a week I do that to myself. And I think people don't get it. They come and they see it and I'm swinging in the air. I'm this and all. That's so much fun. Dude, I'm doing that to myself live. Eight shows a week. I mean, that's happening. That's why I love A Minister's Wife so much. It's a gorgeous theater. It seats 300. And it's such an intimate space. That you are in it. And that set has even closed it down more. Absolutely. You are right. You are only within the, au- so you're the, not, the audience space. Yeah, you're not looking at the living room. You're in it. So it becomes a massively human experience. And for some people, it's very uncomfortable because it'll connect with something in their own lives. Or maybe they didn't expect to connect with something like that from their own lives. And it moves them in such a way. That's what I love more than anything. You know, when people are moved to the point that... They may not want to watch anymore because they don't want to look at their own lives. That's when you're touching people deeply. Hmm. Are you somebody who has stage door conversations? Do people wait to see you and do you engage with them? Yeah, I do. Is that rewarding? Yeah, it's rewarding. You know, I mean, I love that people have a good time. I love that people are affected by things. I love that people want to talk about it. I feel like, like, I remember I used to say to people when we were doing See What I Want to See down at the public, you know, you, you spent $65, $70 on this ticket, but you'll be talking about this for a week, two weeks. So when you break it down day to day, it's actually worth the money, right? <laughs> and that's what I hope, is that you don't just walk out going, well, that was fun. You walk out really thinking about things. I did this piece down um, 
Here's a good example. Down at the Signature Theater in D.C. just recently, Ricky Ann Gordon, uh, a new piece called Sycamore Trees. It's the autobiography of his family life. Brilliant piece. Again, Ricky being a very contemporary, brilliant composer with his own voice. Very brave of him to write the autobiography of his family, which is very dysfunctional. And I played his father, who is a very, very tough guy. And um, I remember a woman, like, two-thirds of the way through, got up and just walked flat out hard. Like, really walked out. She made a whole point. It wasn't an excuse me, I'm going to the bathroom quietly. She was was done, and she was walking out. Okay. And, uh, again, a three-quarter space, so you're really in it. So, of course, everyone was aware that this woman decided to leave. Thankfully, Eric Schaefer, the artistic director, because Tina Landau directed Sycamore Trees, Eric, the, but the artistic director, Eric Schaefer, saw this woman in the lobby leaving and literally said, hey, hey, uh, uh, what's wrong? Did you not enjoy the show? She's like, show's fine, show's fine, um, but I'm out of here. And and he was like, but uh, okay, that's great. I'll, I'll, I'll refund you your ticket or whatever you want. I just want to know why you're leaving. It's not over yet. And she looked him in the eye and said, because I'm not going to watch my son go through that again. Hmm. Now, in our play, there was a character that dies of AIDS. And she just was, I'm not going to watch my son go through that again. And I remember Eric took her downstairs and refunded her ticket. And then I think he handed her another ticket and said, I think you should see the end of the play. I think you'll feel better if you see the end of the play. And Hmm. she did. The next week, she came back. And she watched it all the way through. Hmm. And I just thought, that's what theater is. It's about, you know, facing certain things in your life, seeing them reflected on a stage, and then maybe really coming to terms with something that you didn't know how to put into words yourself, but, but a playwright and, and, and a company and music can. Why is it important to sing? Because it comes from the heart. Because you can express yourself in a way that maybe words just, you don't know the words, but music helps. So you're talking about the impact on the audience, let me ask. Has theater allowed you to express or come to things from your life that you might not have otherwise done? Sure. I mean, yeah, you can't play a role and not allow yourself to be immersed and maybe learn something about yourself. I can tell you from doing a minister's wife, the relationship that Candida and Morell have, I mean, those arguments, that argument that we have on the couch, I mean... Well, I've, I've had that argument God knows how many times with, you know, Shannon, my fiance. I mean, it just makes you hyper aware. You know, again, we talk about someone else's words. Someone else wrote down all of our words. It's like we all have the same emotions. We all have the same feelings. A great playwright is somebody who can put those things down in such a way that you go, oh, my God, me too. Uh, people say, you know, is it hard to play morel? No, I'm just a guy. I'm a guy in a relationship. I'm a guy who feels very strong in his sense of idealism. And this play makes me aware that there are probably a lot of small things in my life that I'm overlooking. Hmm. We talked a lot about acting, talked about the words of playwrights. We've only casually mentioned directors. What do you look for in a director? Again, as somebody who has strong opinions of his own and seems to work so hard to find your character. So what did you want from a director? I want a collaborator. In my opinion, a director's job is to be the boss of all and the assistant to every individual. A good director knows how to be in charge and yet how to assist everyone in organically finding their part of the story. I've worked with some. I've worked with some great directors. I've worked with some absolutely lousy directors. I will point out the ones that I love. I love George Wolfe. I think he's one of the best directors I've ever worked with. I learned so much from George. I learned so much from George about how to multitask and how to find every individual's vernacular. George would give me notes and it would just throw a little and I would go oh and he would just go uh huh go this is see what I want to see right the no this was George? actually the oh, wild party oh my mistake. my mistake and I mean George was brilliant at just knowing what to say just enough and he would watch the light bulb go on and then he'd leave you alone hmm. and I loved that it was brilliant it was one of my favorite auditions of all time for that show I loved auditioning for him and he had such a terrible reputation Hmm. of being this taskmaster and this 
egomaniac. And I remember walking in the room and everyone walking in was petrified because this big article had come out in the Times about him, about being this egomaniacal thing. And I remember walking in the room and he was great. He was funny. He was charming. He was so clear about what he was looking for. He complimented you when he thought you did a good job. And then he would give you a note and see how you would take it. It was fantastic. And I remember as I left, he just looked at me and he grabbed me and he went, that's a good audition. And I walked out going, hells, that was easy. Hmm. What could be hard about that? But what's great about George is unapologetic, just offers it to you, Hmm. just gives you his energy and his passion and his love. And we were doing the wild party. He was the director of it. He was the book writer of it. He was the producer of it. And he was the artistic director of, of the public theater at that time. And watching him be all of those things, those days he'd come in and say, today I'm the book writer. And then go to task on making sure things were there. Other days he'd come in saying, I'm the director. And then watching him go to task on the book writer. Hmm. Saying, well, that's bad, that's out, that's bad, that's out. Okay, that can't stay. And you're like, wow. And then be the artistic director and, and deal with 13, 14 big personalities on a stage. I love George. I love Tina Landau. I, uh, she's just like warm and wonderful and I love viewpointing which is a style that she you know helped to continue to develop and create for the stage it's a vernacular that I absolutely believe in it's uh, Anne Bogart's Anne Bogart but then you know like the the two of them wrote a book together and I love working with Tina because it is such an organic process. And again, she knows how to let things just flow. But then the day comes where she comes in with a ball cap on her head. And you know, now she's given direction. And let's okay, that's done. Now, boom, 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 boom. And more often than not with Tina, most people think she's not even working. You know, hmm. because she's just letting people explore. But she knows how to let that happen. I love Joe Mantello. I love him dearly. I think he's got great taste. He's so smart. He's so focused on wanting to tell story and so focused on how to go from, especially in music theater, from music to script and demanding and demanding on his actors, to be honest, and yet allows for fun humor, allows for cheap humor sometimes, says, you know, it's good. Every now and again, it's good stuff. I love Joe. I think he's fantastic. Clearly, he's a wildly talented guy, you know. And it's always good in some ways, directors that were once actors, because they do understand the process that actors need to go through. So these are some of the people that I truly love. Do you ever want to direct? Yes. So you're looking for that opportunity? Well, you know, George told me back in 2000, I remember we were sitting next to each other during tech, and he said to me, when are you going to start to direct? Tina has said that to me. I mean, I want to direct. Uh, I want to produce. I want to write. And I'm starting to do those things. This has been one of the most intense discussions I've had in 320-plus conversations for this program. So I have a very simple final question. Do you have fun when you're doing all of this? I play or is it work? This is fun. Not We're, the conversation. No, the, but I mean the, but, but, your, your but, career. But, the con- but this is all a part of it, isn't it? Look, man, this is life. And a part of life is work. And a part of life is your beliefs. And a part of life is wanting to communicate. I love what I do. I'm, I'm thrilled that I get to do what I do. And I'm thrilled that I've had the opportunity to do as much of it as I had. And to do the variety that I've done. And to continue to stand firm for what I believe in terms of the kind of work that I want to do, I always have fun. I am intense because I'm very passionate about what I do. And like I said, if you ain't passionate about doing it, it ain't worth doing. But I play hard. I say that to people all the time. I'm okay. I'm good. I'm having a good time. I just play hard. I like playing hard. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm a kid. Believe me, when I'm backstage or when the work is done, I'm an idiot. I am. And, 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 And when I walk off into the wings, I can drop it just as quickly. No big deal. Um, Because the work is done now. Um, And so now is playtime. But I believe in playing passionately, and I believe in playing authentically, and I believe in playing intensely. Well, I just have to say, I've enjoyed watching you play, and I I look forward to many more years of it. Mark (laughs) Kudish, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thanks, too. 
Our engineer for this Downstage Center is John Kilgore. Post-production is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. This edition of Downstage Center was recorded at John Kilgore Sound and Recording in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter, at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter, as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook, at The American Theatre Wing, and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we're a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.